This evening will be in 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. We conclude this series tonight. started about 15 months ago. And uh, we'll start in the 1st Timothy next time we have an evening service, which will be two weeks from tonight. 2 Samuel 24. As a child, I couldn't wait to grow up because growing up meant fewer rules, I thought. Right? I would get out from underneath my parents, so I'd be able to do whatever I wanted, and no one could tell me no. No one could discipline me because of my sin. But when I grew up, which is still open for debate, I learned that being left alone to my sin was actually not something to treasure, not something to look forward to. Being left alone to my sin was the worst possible thing that I could do. And I realized that the fact that my parents and teachers and pastor cared about my sin was actually the most loving and merciful thing that they could do to me. That they were kind enough to deal with my sin even though I would rather they leave me alone. And as I grew up, I also learned that I never really am alone. That my family and this church serve as encouragements and warnings to me to stay on the path of righteousness and not to enjoy the sins of my youth. And so while we might think that the greatest pleasure and the greatest freedom come from being left alone, Romans 1 actually tells us that it's the opposite. That to be left alone to enjoy our sin is actually the worst kind of judgment that a person can have in this life. And God is merciful. God is loving enough not to leave us alone in our sin. He doesn't leave His children alone. He deals with our sin. In chapter 21, Saul uh, sinned and God's anger burned against Israel. And then God's wrath, wrath was assuaged when atonement was made. In chapter 24 here, David sins and God, God's anger burns against Israel again. God's wrath is assuaged again through an atonement that is made. But in both chapters, David is the one who is concerned about satisfying God's wrath with a proper atonement. So that's what we'll see, that, that God is merciful enough to, to deal with our sin. Let me read uh, verses 1-18 through 18 for us tonight. Second Samuel chapter 24. This is the Word of God. Now again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and it incited David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. The king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and register the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see. But why does my lord the the king still... Uh, delight in this thing. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan, camped in Eroar, on the right side of the city, that is in the middle of the valley of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadshi, and they came to Dan Jaon and around to Sidon. 
and came to the fortress of Tyre to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites and they went out to the south of Judah to Beersheba. So when they had gone about through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now David's heart was troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from morning until the appointed time. And 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aronah, the Jebusite, And then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned and it is I who have done wrong, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. God is merciful to deal with our sin. David's going to see that again firsthand, that in his sin, God is merciful enough not to leave him alone, but instead to deal with his sin and to bring atonement. In verses 1-13, through 13, we see that God is merciful to awaken us to the danger of our sin. God is merciful to awaken us to the danger of our sin. begins with the wrath of God and the sin of David. David sins in taking a census. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong about taking a census. In fact, God commanded that they be taken in Exodus chapter 30, verse 12, Numbers chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 4, chapter 26. So, so God is uh, commanding Moses and others to, to take a census. So, so there's nothing inherently wrong about it, but Joab's reluctance in verse 3 indicates that there is sin, and obviously David's admission in verse 10 shows that it was sin. Notice Joab's reluctance here in verse 3, which is kind of surprising. Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? So he seems to be resisting David. David gives him a direct order Go number the people. And Joab says, are you sure you want to do this? And we know from Joab's history that he's not the strongest of believers, if at all, but, but he certainly does make steps of 
uh, he, he certainly shows signs of faith at times, and he certainly seems to have an indication between what is right and what is wrong. So, if the sin is not in the act itself, the sin had to be one of three other things. It either had to be something that was done at the wrong time, or in the wrong manner, or with the wrong motivation. So if the act itself is not sin, it has to be one of those other three things. For example, the, the timing of our obedience is important, right? Sexual intimacy between a man and a woman is God-ordained, but when done at the wrong time, it is a sin against God, that is, before marriage. So in this case, it could be that David is taking this census, but he's doing it at the wrong time, at a time when God didn't want him to do it. Or it could have been done in the wrong manner. The manner of our obedience is also important. Remember 1 Chronicles 15 when David wanted to transport the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines back to Jerusalem and he simply left it on the cart that the Philistines had sent it on. And when he did, Uzzah died as a consequence. So what was being done was a good thing. They were taking the Ark back to Jerusalem. It wasn't necessarily it was done at the wrong time or the wrong motivation, but it was done in the wrong manner. It was supposed to be carried on poles rather than on the cart. And even Uzzah himself, I think, had a good motive when he was trying to protect the ark from falling again, but, but it was done in the wrong manner. It should not have been carried on a, on a cart. The third possibility, if it's not the act of sin in, in taking the census, it's not the, the timing of it or the manner of it, then the third possibility is the motivation. Think about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. They serve as a negative example for us. They did a good thing, gave money to the church with the wrong motive. They wanted to be seen by others, and they were judged by God. They lied to Peter, to the Holy Spirit, and to God, the text says. So it could be that David sinned in the timing. He did it at the wrong time when God didn't want him to. Or in the manner, uh, some scholars say that there was a, shek- a, shekel ta- a half shekel tax that was charged to each person who was involved in the census. So when you were counted, you would also give a half shekel tax that would go to the Levites. Uh, and maybe David said, you know what, I don't want to charge this to them. So it could be that he did it in the wrong manner. He took the census, but he didn't do it in the right way. But I think it more likely is that David sinned in his motivation, and I can only guess here because the text doesn't say. Maybe David wanted to bolster his confidence for going to battle. Right? He, he wanted to count how many people he had to see how strong he was rather than trusting in the Lord. Some trust in chariots, Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And maybe David was starting to pull back from his, his, uh, his great trust in God and starting to trust in what he had and the men that he had. Well, the text doesn't say what why this is, was a sin, but we know that it was a sin because of Job's reluctance, but most clearly because of David's admission in verse 10. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Well, even though Joab is reluctant, David's wish prevails in verse 4. And so Joab in, uh, in verses 5 through 9 takes a counterclockwise uh, trip around Israel. He starts out going east 
east of the Jordan, getting all the tribes over there, heading up north to the area of Dan, and then all the way down to Beersheba. And he's simply just counting the troops. He's registering them uh, according to the ones who are eligible for military service. And when he finished, after nine months, he came back with a number, 800,000 in Israel and 500,000 in Judah. These are probably rounded numbers in verse 9. So, we could spend a lot of time thinking about why this is sinful, but, but maybe a better question is, why did David do it? Why did David take a census? Notice, um, turn back in your... Or, Turn, turn to your, in your Bibles to First Chron, Chronicles, excuse me, First Chronicles chapter 21. This is a parallel account of the same story. First Chronicles chapter 21. And here it gives us a little bit more insight into what's going on behind the scenes of David's senses. Notice what the text says in verse one. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab, go and number Israel. And then Joab, again, verse 3, says the same thing. Are you sure you want to do this? And verse 4, the king's word prevails, and he comes back with a number, which, again, are, are rounded and somewhat different. We get into why there are differences, but it is the same census. So, but what I want you to notice there is verse 1, that Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So in First Chronicles, the reason... What's going on behind the scenes is that Satan somehow is inciting David to number the people, to take this census. Now turn back to our text in 2 Samuel 24. Notice what our text says. No mention of Satan. The text says that the, Lord, that the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and it incited David against them. And probably better, he incited David. Okay, Because if you think, well... Maybe it was God's anger that incited David in this passage. Well, how can anger incite anything? How can a person's anger... It's not a person. Okay? It's not, it doesn't cause someone to do something. So, how could God's anger... Really, what it's saying is how could, that it is God. He incited David against them. So, in First Chronicles 21, it's Satan who incited David to number the people. And in Second Samuel 24, it's God. God's anger, because God was, notice, God was angry at Israel for some reason, and as a result, he or his anger incited David to sin. And so, if in considering these two passages, that idea rubs you the wrong way, then that's good. Because we don't want to attribute evil to God, right? Habakkuk 1, verse 13, Habakkuk says to God, God, you are too pure to approve evil. And we know also, not just from Habakkuk, but from the rest of the Bible, that God cannot sin. And neither does He, James 1, tempt anyone to sin. But here, I think, is what we learn from this, and that is that God is not aloof to the sin of the world. He is very much aware of the sin that is going on. And in some way... Like we see here in verse 1 of our text, God stands behind the sin that we commit. Now, not, that, not in the sense that He is the author of our sin. We could never see that, say that God is the author of our sin or the creator of our sin or that He forces us to sin. 
but he stands beyond, behind it in the sense that he is the sovereign planner and ruler over all. He knows what's going to happen before it happens because he's planned it all, including our sin. So definitely, we want to defend God's purity, but in our defense of God's purity, we cannot destroy his sovereignty. What I mean by that is that we cannot say that God has no control over evil, that his hands are tied when it comes to evil, that God is the God of only the good, and, and that all the evil that's out there, he has no control over it. Because if he doesn't have control over every molecule of the universe, then he is not infinite and he is not sovereign. The fact is that as hard as it is for us to conceive or to understand, God stands behind both good and evil. But he doesn't stand behind them both in the same way, right? He stands behind all the good in the world, in that He is the author and the creator of everything that is good, and that He deserves all the credit. So anything that good that happens in the world is because of God. But He also stands behind evil, but not in the same way. Not that He's the author or creator, or that He has to stand trial for any evil that happens, but rather, He is the sovereign ruler over it. He doesn't create it or force it or tempt anyone to it but he does have power over it. He does have control even over evil. Let me just remind you of this or support this truth from other passages of Scripture that may already be coming to mind for you. Genesis 50:20 is the first that comes to mind, that God stood behind the evil of Joseph's brothers, right? And in fact, God planned the evil of Joseph's brothers because when they came to Joseph and said, please don't kill us, Now that Dad's dead, please don't kill us. Joseph said, listen, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So their evil act in selling Joseph off into slavery, they meant it to be evil, and it was evil. And yet God was standing behind it saying, I meant this for your good. I planned that your brothers would sell you into slavery so that many people would be saved through you, Joseph. How about in Exodus when God hardened Pharaoh's heart? He stood behind the evil of Pharaoh in that he planned that Pharaoh would resist God's command to let Israel go. And why? So that all the world would know, so that Egypt would know, so that Israel would know, and that all the world would know, all the nations would see that God is more powerful than the strongest nation. God stood behind the evil of Pharaoh in that he was sovereign over it and that he even planned it. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, God sent an evil spirit on King Saul. Job chapter 1, God stood behind the evil of Satan as he brought Job to his knees. It's not that God caused Satan to do this. God's simply giving permission, but in that way, he still is in control of what will happen. God was not unaware of Job's pain. God was not unaware of the troubles that came to Job because he planned it. He permitted it, didn't He? And of course, the most notable example in the Scriptures is from Acts 2 and Acts 4, that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God when He was nailed to the cross by hands of godless men who put Him to death. Jesus was delivered over, so their evil was that they nailed Him to the cross, but God stood behind it because He planned it. It wasn't as if 
you know, the, the crucifixion of Jesus was a reaction or that was a surprise to God and God had to react. Right? No, instead, it was something that God had planned before the foundations of the earth that this is how redemption would come to all mankind. And the reason and the way that it would come is by, by Jesus dying on the cross. God planned His death. We just read about it in Isaiah 53 and sang about it as well. That this Messiah would come and be our suffering servant. It wasn't a surprise to God. He's not just looking down the corridors of time and thinking, seeing kind of what will happen. He knows what will happen because He's planned it all. Acts 4.28, The city was gathered against Jesus so that Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and Israel would do whatever God's hand and purpose predestined to occur. What did God's hand predestined to occur? That Jesus would die. And the, the most vile act ever committed in history. That the God-man would die. And so while this is hard to, to comprehend that, that God could stand behind the evil of the cross, God could stand behind, in some sense, the evil of Joseph's brothers and the evil of Satan as he, he, um, he took his, his wrath out on Job and even behind the census of David, we should also be encouraged that our God is not like the God of the deists who, as they say, created everything and then just lets it all go. He's kind of hands off. Our God did create all things, but He is intimately involved in all of our lives, even planning and sovereignly ruling over every act in our lives and in the lives of pagans as well, in order that He will accomplish exactly what He wants. Nothing comes as a surprise to God. God never reacts in the sense that uh, he, He's kind of scrambling to see what He has to do next. He already knows His next move because He's planned everything that will happen. In verses 10 through 13, we see the confession of David and the compassion of God. When the census is complete, David recognizes the weight of his sin and turns to God for forgiveness. And yet God is just... And He will not allow sin to just be swept under the rug. Instead, God mercifully shows David and Israel the weight of their sin by bringing severe judgment on them. And David asks for atonement in verse 10. He says, take away my iniquity. And God responds with, yes, you can have atonement, but it's going to come in one of three ways. Option number one, in verses 11 through 13, seven years of famine. Option number two, three months of war. Option number three, three days of pestilence. So apparently, uh, possibly I should say, the same number of lives would have died over whatever period of time. So it could be spread out over a long period of time, seven years of famine. could be over a relatively uh, short period of time, three months of war, or an even shorter period of time, three days of pestilence. You decide. In verses 14 through 17, we see that God is merciful to give us less than our sins deserve. Notice, David's not concerned about saving face here in verse 14. He says, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. David's not concerned about saving face. He's not saying, you know, what's going to make me look best in the eyes of the people? That's the thing I want to do. He's primarily concerned with what will be the least damaging to them. What will... What will be the least harming to the image of God to, to 
through the reputation of God, maybe a better way to say it. David eliminates option two. says, we don't want to ha- fall into the hand of the enemy because they may be merciless with you, but with us, but we know, God, that you will be merciful to us. So, so David essentially says, I, I'm not going to decide. I, I can't decide between options one and three, the famine or the pestilence. And so, God, you decide. Be merciful to us. And God chooses option number three. Verse 15, So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. God is merciful, merciful to deal with sin by bringing calamity. Why is it mercy for God to bring calamity? Why is it mercy for God to, to bring some kind of catastrophic or natural catastrophe to us because of sin? I think part of the reason is that it shows us how damaging, how terrible our moral sin is, our immoral sin. But God is also merciful not only to deal with the sin, but also to give them less than what they deserve. Right? I mean, God could have, in His justice and in His righteousness, He could have wiped them all out. God is merciful to stay faithful to His promise and preserve a remnant and not kill all of them. Remember, we're talking about 1.3 million military men, so potentially 2 to 3 million people and 70,000. While it is a lot, is not a majority of the people that had to die. David anticipated that God would be merciful. And notice verse 16, when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. God was merciful. David was right. God, we know if we put ourselves into your hand, we don't go to war, that if it's going to be pestilence or famine, that you'll be merciful to us. That's in fact what happened. God looked down on his people and pitied them. And he stopped his hand In verse 17, David again acknowledges and takes ownership of his sin and pleads for mercy. He said, Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong, but these sheep, talking about Israel, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. God is merciful to awaken us to the danger of our sin. God is merciful to give us less than our sins deserve. And then, verse 18, God is merciful to give lasting atonement. God is merciful to give lasting atonement. In order for the pestilence to stop, God's wrath had to be satisfied. It had to be assuaged. So God sends His prophet Gad to David to tell him to erect an altar in verse 18. This is another act of mercy on the part of God that He is creating a way for David and Israel to be reconciled to God. Notice David's response. David, verse 19, David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. So Gad said in verse 18, go up and erect an altar on the threshing floor at Arona. And David went up. So David was happy to apply, uh, comply. He goes to Arona to find out how much the threshing floor costs in verses 20 and 21. David tells 
the reason why he came at the end of verse 21 to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. And Arona replies, you know, there's no cost to you, David. It's, it's a gift from, from me to you. In fact, I'll throw in some oxen. Notice verse 22. Let my Lord the King take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sludges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O King, Arana gives to the King. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. So Arana owns the land. And David says, How much do you want for it? And he says, Nothing. In fact, I'll throw in some, some animals for you as well that you can sacrifice to your God. May it be a gift from me to you, me to God. May God accept it. And notice David's profound response in verse 24. The king said to Arana, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built an altar there to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. David says, I'm not going to give to God what costs me nothing. Essentially saying, if my worship of God is meaningless to me, then why would it be meaningful to Him? You know the mantra that we use today, one, one man's junk is another man's treasure. That works for garage sales, but it doesn't work for our worship of God. We cannot come to God thinking, you know, my worship of Him is not really that important to me, but hey, maybe He might get something out of it. Maybe He might really like it, just if I show up. What if I give my leftovers to God? Something that costs me nothing. Maybe God will get something out of it. How would your mom like it if for Christmas you dug through the garbage and found something that was going to be thrown away and wrapped it up and gave it to her? It would make your Christmas shopping a lot easier, wouldn't it? Why do we think that God appreciates it when we give Him something that is of no value to us? Do you think God magically takes pleasure in our worship even when our hearts are not even engaged? Hey God, I went through the motions today. Hey God, I slept my way through another church service. Hope you enjoyed that. How can I give to the Lord what costs me nothing? How can I give to the Lord my leftovers? How can I not give to the Lord what is my best? And God's response is, again, mercy. He gives atonement through this burnt and peace offering that David's able to offer there after he makes the altar. And then he, he mercifully ends the pestilence, ends the plague that had killed 70,000. And this location, this threshing floor on the top of the hill, would be the future site of the temple that Solomon would build, which we know for years to come would be the place where God would grant atonement for His people when they confessed their sin and brought a proper sacrifice. So what God is doing is He's being merciful in providing lasting atonement by stopping the, the plague, and He's providing atonement by... Uh, by David purchasing this land that will be used as a future site of atonement. 
I have to admit that this passage is troubling in many ways. That's the nature of the mystery of God. There's much value that we have here in this chapter. We love to look at God's mercy and, and we're happy to know that He is intolerant against sin. But what bothers us is all the unanswered questions. I mean, why did, did Israel, what did Israel do to anger God? It was God's anger against Israel that incited David to do the census. Why would David have to sin in order for God to pour out His wrath? Why not, if God was angry at Israel for something that they had done, why not just pour out His wrath on Israel? Why the census in between? Why was David held responsible for his sin when, when God's anger incited it? So many unanswered questions about God and His dealings. And we don't like this. We want God to speak and to tell us why. Tell us what is going on. Tell us all of your motivations. Do you see what we're doing here? We're essentially putting God on trial. But who are we to put God on trial? Who are we to exalt ourselves to the level of God so that we can judge His action and motives and say, God, what have you done? Because everything that God does is right. Remember what happened when Job, Job began to question the actions and the motives of God? God put him in his place. Job, where were you when I created the world? Did you know about all the goats that are giving birth off in the mountains? Do you even know about that, Job? Do you know what that's going on? Do you know how to take care of them? See, it's okay for God to stand in judgment over us, but we can never stand in judgment of God. He has every right to stand in judgment of us because He is our superior, our creator. But who are we to stand in judgment of God? We are the clay. God is the potter. He's not subject to our finite human testing. It's as silly as a cookie that I just baked coming off the cooling rack and telling me I should have added a little more sugar. Or as silly as a one-year-old child of mine telling me that I'm not feeding him the proper nutrients. You see, when we test something, in this case God, we sit in judgment over that object and God and His Word will not be judged by anyone. I mean, what are we really doing when we stand in judgment of God's actions and motives? Are we not saying that we don't believe everything He does is right? Or that we are better than God. You see, we're calling into question God's character as if we have a greater knowledge than He. We think that we are at the center of the universe and that God exists to serve us. So in this enigmatic story, we and David and Israel are left to depend on God even though we don't have all the answers. And the truth is that God is not aloof regarding our sin. He knows exactly what's going on because He sovereignly rules over every action, good and evil, that was ever done, that, that is being done right now and that ever will be done. And we have no right to question or to blame Him for any evil that we do. We take responsibility for our own evil even though God, in some sense, stands behind it because He is sovereign over it and has planned all that has happened. The mystery of God is troubling 
but it reminds us of who is who is in control, who is the sovereign. And secondly, the mercy of God is the foundation of our hope. The mercy of God is the foundation of our hope. The books of Samuel begin with the expectation of a future king in the prayer of Hannah. And eventually, God did bring a king. It wasn't through Hannah's son. But it would be a king that the people wanted. His name was Saul. He came and ruled like a lot of the pagan kings before him and eventually was removed from his throne. But then David came. And David would lead his people in righteousness, generally speaking. He was like the brightness of the sunshine after the rain or at sunrise. But he was far from ideal. He had many flaws and brought much trouble on himself and his family and his nation. But through it all, God was faithful to his promises, wasn't he? And the book ends with a God who mercifully reconciles himself to his people, his sinful people. And while we, like David as Israel's king, we are left desiring a greater king, one from the family of David who will be all that God intended, but would be a king to whom David will bow. And that is David's greater son, King Jesus. Just like in chapter 24, God uses His king, Jesus, to bring His people to Himself. And He mercifully deals with the sin of mankind. He does that by awakening them to the danger of their sin. By giving them less than they deserve and providing for them lasting atonement. That's our Savior. And that's ultimately who the Old Testament points to. That's ultimately who David points to. So we have much to praise God about. Certainly, we're not left without questions. But but the questions help us to cling harder to God and to take Him at His Word even when that Word rubs us the wrong way a little bit. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that You are merciful. And uh, while we see, um, especially in the first verse, some troubling idea that Your anger was behind David's census, that that was what incited David sin we know that the the bulk of the chapter is about your mercy you were kind enough to show David the the weight the the terror of his own sin and also to give him less than he deserved and and then to provide lasting atonement Lord you've done the same thing for us we don't understand all the whys we don't understand why you would ever choose us but we do know that you have chosen us because we see fruit and we are profoundly thankful for your calling us to be a part of your family. We're profoundly thankful that you loved us enough to send Jesus to be crucified for us and that you gave to us all the promises that are in him, yes, so we can be sure that they will all come to pass. They will all be fulfilled. Lord, we are recipients of your mercy. 
you've given us less than our sins deserve and you provide for us lasting and you could say permanent, eternal atonement so that there's no more that we need to add to it. There's no more works that we have to do in order to be accepted by you. We are accepted in the Beloved just as if we were Jesus himself. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of your mercy, because of his righteousness, because of his payment on our behalf. And so, Lord, we praise you for our Savior who was wounded for us and who now lives at your right hand and guarantees us a future resurrection and a home with you. May you shape our minds by the word, and even when we come to difficult passages, may we take you at your word and at the same time not tribute anything evil to your name. You are too pure to approve evil. Lord, thank you. You stand behind all the good that is going on in the world and that you deserve all the credit for it. We want to give you praise for that this evening and rely on you for more mercy. Lord, we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.